only cause of evolution. Well, the most prominent evolutionary biologist, because he was a popular writer, was Stephen Jay Gould, who died, unfortunately, young some years ago. And he objected to this strict strict uh, natural selection or strict Darwinism and believed there were other factors. And in part because, well, ultimately, he, he even though there's a famous quote from him that we should not let our politics interfere with our scientific findings, uh, if it's true, it's true, whether we like it or not, we can see where it did happen to him. And he very much objected to uh, social Darwinism or um, what was it, Wilson's book? The name of it will come to mind. But Gould objected to it, and it's pretty well accepted today. It's pretty well accepted that, um, uh, yes, there could be other factors, but Stephen J. Gould didn't get it right. Well, anyway. What was the selfish gene about? And what it was about, that once Darwinism was accepted, yes, uh, natural selection drives um, evolution, uh, ongoing variation in species. And then it's generally accepted that you need isolation to form a new species. In other words, you would get um, uh, a species and it gets cut off. Uh, half of them are on one, you know, the sea level lowers and what had been hills become islands. So now two groups are isolated and they will genetically drift over a period of time until one of them becomes a, a new species. But anyway, the question was, where does this natural selection take place? Um, we assumed it was in individuals. One individual is more fit to survive. <clears throat> we don't want to say superior because what is fit depends upon the environment. So if the environment gets hot, a thin coat might be, a thin f a coat of fur might be better. <clears throat> if the environment gets colder, a thick coat of fur might be better. But anyway, uh, w one individual, a group of individuals, well, say one individual is more fit to survive and will have more offspring, and another will be less fit to survive and will have less offspring. And one of the tricks of Darwinism is you need millions of years. You need geological time. And geological time had become sort of firmly established just shortly before uh, Darwin's book, Origin of Species. So uh, he did have geological time working for him. If the Earth was 5,000 years old, uh, as one story has it, uh, it's kind of hard to get natural, you know, natural selection to work. But if it's millions or even billions of years old, then it's quite workable. Well, <clears throat> uh, then it came along, I'm sorry, uh, Dawkins came along and said, no, it's not in the individual, it's in the gene. So that if you... Well, other suggestions were it was in populations. One group will be better fit than another group. So does natural selection take place in the group, in the individual, or in the gene? So 
notions in the gene will be that there becomes a variation in the, in the gene. There's a new gene or a variation of a gene. And it, <clears throat> to anthropomorphize, that's, if I got that right, um, <clears throat> that gene wants to get into the future. And it better because if it does, if the genes that get into the future are the ones that are still around. The genes that don't are the ones that are not still around. So um, the gene that causes, for whatever reason, its carrying organism, and the organism is just a uh, gene transfer. <laughs> we are just uh, temporary houses, housings of genes that project themselves into the future through reproduction. Um, the genes that do get into the future survive. The genes that don't get into the future don't survive. Now, there's some tricky uh, mathematics and observations to say, well, is it the individual or the gene that's, um, that where the natural selection takes place? And the selfish gene, the book, very much... Um, demonstrates it's the gene. And people don't like it, you know, that we are just carriers of genes, but, you know, we, we'd rather see the animal, uh, the creature, as the important thing. But the book is pretty convincing. And then what happened was uh, uh, the book is old enough that I think it was in the 1980s, uh, Dawkins did a revised edition, so that's the one I recently listened to. And he's able to review the uh, objections to the book and also review new evidence. So it's pretty convincing. Well, it turns out that there's a cabal here. And uh, let me see if I can find it here. Here we go. Um so Daniel Dennett, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and the late Christopher Hitchens are referred to as the four horsemen of new atheism. So they are radical materialists. Um, and uh, they can still be humanists, but they uh, uh, reject uh, biblical religion, reject any religion, reject any supernatural causes of uh, anything, um, either of our evolution or our behavior, and say it's um, they they you know question free will. It's very much. Um, physical, biological determinists. So I object to that, but uh, kind of hard, you know. It's kind of tricky uh, how I would describe my position because I certainly would uh, not say that I would say I'm not someone who finds the Bible. I consider the Bible literature, let's put it that way. So I was thinking about the figures whom I appreciate. 
So I'll just list them. Um, Oswald Spengler, Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell, Marshall McLuhan, and Camille Paglia. And oh, Camille Paglia has a new book just coming out, so I keep checking to see if uh, <clears throat> there's an audio version. And not yet, so. Most of our books since Sexual Personae have been collections of essays, although she did a book on poetry and a book on art that are very good. But what do these people have in common? And also, some of my favorite architects, Louis Sullivan, Frank Lloyd Wright, Mies van der Rohe, and Louis Kahn. <clears throat> and all of them, all these figures, see culture as symbolic and are essentialists and are see archetypes, that there are fundamental archetypal oh, archetypes, and they are then manifestation of them in particular examples. <clears throat> kind of a platonic idea. And so uh, essentialism has a bad name, um, very much rejected in contemporary thought. Let me see if I've got a printed out essentialism here from, uh, no, I don't have it here. But anyway, very much rejected in contemporary thought, particularly feminism. But let's look at an essentialist thought. So this is from Louis Sullivan. Louis Sullivan was a um, pioneering American modern architect in Chicago at the turn of the century, turn of the 19th to 20th century, and is known for being Frank Lloyd Wright's mentor and for developing a lot of the ideas of the modern skyscraper. And in his last book, on the last page, he's got a diagram of a seed split open, and we see the germ. And he writes, <clears throat> The germ is the real thing, the seat of identity. Within its delicate mechanism lies the will to power, the function, which is to seek and eventually find its full expression in form. And then, uh, before I explain that, Frank Lloyd Wright writes, What is honor? Not the rules of the code, but the nature of honor. What would be the honor of a brick? That in the brick which makes the brick a brick. Now, <clears throat> so these are essentialist ideas. There is in the germ, the seed germ, well, let's imagine uh, an oak tree. Uh, an oak tree. So the acorn wants to be an oak tree. So Louis Kahn uses that term when he designs a building. New project comes into the office. The first question is, what does this building want to be? Now, right away, <clears throat> two big problems. One is, how can a building want anything? And two is, wait a minute doesn't even exist yet. We haven't designed it yet. So how can a material thing that doesn't exist want something? So there's a lot of profound ideas in the thoughts of these three architects. 
<coughs> Mies van der Rohe as well. And they're not often unfolded, uh, unpacked. So, first of all, in terms of the immaterial thing wanting, and so Sullivan is challenged. He, uh, <clears throat> you know, he says, steel wants to be thin and attenuated. And someone challenges him and says, how can an immaterial thing like steel want anything? And he says, of course it can. I'm sorry. Of course it can't. It only does in dialogue with the architect. So in a way, the uh, brick or the steel or the building can't, doesn't have an inner will to be something. It does only in dialogue with the architect, we may then see as a midwife. So... <clears throat> Expanding this more broadly, uh, are we midwives, all of us, bringing into being our world? So um, the germ is the real thing, the seed of identity. So we would say, yeah, there's DNA in there. So, of course, we have to take um, Sullivan's thoughts metaphorically. Uh, okay. Uh, the seed of identity. So within its delicate mechanism lies the will to power. Again, we would call that DNA. But remember will to power, a term from Nietzsche, that the world is driven by a will to power. I am driven by wanting to express my John Lobelness. Um, we're each driven to manifest ourselves. That's the will to power. And uh, Schopenhauer, from whom Nietzsche uh, gets this and Sullivan gets it from Nietzsche, um, <clears throat> is even seeing this will to power as the fundamental force in nature. So what is this will to power? And Sullivan elaborates. It's the function which is to seek and eventually find its full expression in form. So... <clears throat> We have this uh, term that people like to throw about and associate with Frank Lloyd Wright and Louis Sullivan, form follows function. And Sullivan right away says, I do not mean the crude functionalism of the materialists. In other words, we say, well, uh, we've got some classrooms on this corridor, and if there's a fire alarm, everybody comes out of the classroom and proceeds down the corridor. How many people will that be, and therefore— that's the uh, function, getting the people down the corridor. Uh, the form, how wide does the corridor have to be to fulfill that function? Well, Sullivan says, yeah, that's true, but it's not what I'm talking about. Uh, what he's talking about is this inner will, which is seeking to express itself in form. And he says, the office building wants to be a proud and soaring thing. So... We've got this uh, drive within the brick, the building, the office building, the steel, to manifest itself in form. So that's sort of one of the notions of essentialism is an essence to the brick, to the steel, to the office building, <clears throat> to whatever building has come into our office that we're going to design. And we seek to find that essence and then 
manifested in in the particular. In other words, okay, now we have a program and a budget and a location and a, a particular school that we're designing. And so how do we manifest that transcendent essentialism in this particular manifestation? Well, uh, is that true in nature? And there's some attempts at that in philosophy. And I pretty much reject them. Uh, and we can think of it, a good example would be in biology. So if we say um, that, if we refer to a tiger, now is there an essence of a tiger? Is there the essential tiger? Is there an essence um, which is present in all tigers? <clears throat> and we used to think that way before Darwin. And so there was each species. There were, you know, tigers and lions, tigers and lions and bears. And what happens is with Darwin and with our understanding of evolution today, we say, no, the tiger is um, a bunch of animals that can interbreed. Tigers can also interbreed with lions. If you uh, don't want to do this, but if you shoot and skin a tiger and a lion, you can't tell them apart. They are very similar. So, well, so tigers and lions can interbreed. They don't because one's in Africa and one's in uh, uh, in India uh, or Asia. So that'll that'll keep them from interbreeding. But, in fact, we today understand the tiger is a, um, a bunch of uh, a gathering of DNA. So let's develop what we mean by that after we take a break. This is John LaBelle. You're listening to Visionaries on PRN, and we'll be back in a minute. It's not liberal. It's not conservative. It's progressive. The truth that empowers. Right here on PRN, the Progressive Radio Network. Hey folks, my name is Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I'm here to tell you about the Millennial Politics Podcast. We speak with the next generation of progressive candidates, activists, and organizations dedicated to restoring our democracy and protecting our civil rights and liberties. Make sure to stay tuned for Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on the Progressive Radio Network, to hear the most recent episode of our podcast. And follow us on social media and iTunes to stay up to date with everything millennial politics. Stay tuned to PRN.FM for more empowering ideas from progressive voices. We're moving forward, and we hope you're coming with us. Light Treason News, hosted by Allison Kilkenny, interviews fascinating people and wild characters 
in this political comedy podcast. So tune in Thursdays at 8 p.m. on the Progressive Radio Network for pop culture. Sasha Baron Cohen dresses up as different characters and interviews people. And sometimes they're just like average Americans. And sometimes they're really, really famous politicians and personalities. Politics. But we we know this song and dance, right? It was called Triangulation during the Clinton years. Yeah, and it was how we ended up destroying a bunch of the social safety net. And a sprinkling of treason. Light Treason News on the Progressive Radio Network. Welcome back. I'm John LaBelle, and we're our show today on visionaries is about oh what archetypalism and essentialism and ideas like that. So <clears throat> we just left off with a tiger. Is there any such thing as a tiger? Is it a thing? Well, we would say today, and I think pretty convincingly, it's a temporary gathering of DNA. Uh, There's animals that, other big cats that have somewhat similar gatherings of DNA. What's the scary (laughs) percent? You know, we share, we share 99% of our DNA with chimpanzees. Uh, Only 1% makes the difference. And we share 20% of our DNA with bananas. <laughs> so there's a lot of overlap. And, you know, overlap between tigers and lions. But the tiger is descended, tigers are descended from creatures in the past that were different. And they will eventually lead to creatures in the future that will be different. So <clears throat> there is no fixed, frozen tiger, essential tiger. Although we uh, don't really recognize that because we use the term tiger in two ways. We say that tiger over there, and that would conform to what I was just saying. But we also say the tiger is a dangerous animal. And again, now we're talking about um, an idealized essential tiger, as opposed to that particular one in the bush over there. So anyway, this comes up, came up recently for me, where my late wife, Mimi Lobel, had spent years writing a book, Spatial Archetypes, The Hidden Patterns of Psyche and Civilization. So you can find it on Amazon. I finally uh, published it. And I finished editing it and publishing it. And in my introduction, I talk about the book. What the book does is it looks at the major, major historical periods, but it recognizes that they are not linear and chronological. But all cultures go through a sequence of... Um, archetypal stages. And uh, Mimi very much does not want to consider them developmental. Each one is complete in its own right. But they are, we're familiar with them, right? Hunting 
hunting-gathering tribal peoples, and then uh, which she calls the sensitive chaos, the great round, which is Neolithic early small-scale agriculture goddess-worshipping peoples, then four-quarters people who are Bronze Age warrior chieftains that we know best in from the Iliad and the Odyssey. But all of these exist in all cultures in all parts of the world. So that the Bronze Age warrior chieftains uh, of Greece, the period of the Mycenaeans, <coughs> Achilles was a Mycenaean, they're similar, well, uh, the Plains Indians, Pachis and Navajos, a four-quartered warrior um, people. The, and that period exists in India and China throughout the world. The next stage is pyramid stage. And that's a when you get a pyramid-building theocratic nation-state. And, well, that's what Egypt was in the Old Kingdom. By the time of the New Kingdom, time of Ramses, uh, they're no longer building pyramids, and it's an empire. Well, but this pyramid stage exists everywhere. It's, we see pyramids in Mesopotamia, uh, Mayan pyramids, um, and then Mimi contends that the Gothic cathedral is a pyramid, the Greek temple is a pyramid. So it's the <clears throat> certain characteristic of that stage. It's theocratic, mixing statecraft and religion. Then there's a period of empire. It's a, she describes it as radiant axes. And we say all roads lead to Rome during the time of the Roman Empire. But we have the radiant axes of Louis XIV's Versailles. We have uh, the radiant axes of the symbolic radiant axes of the Incan capital. So <clears throat> we find these. Uh, and then the final one is um, the final two are the grid, which is the commercial uh, democratic, dispirited um, society that we live in today in our culture, and then disillusion. Well, <clears throat> Mimi was very interested in this Neolithic period, the Great Round, because it was goddess-centered, and she designed a contemporary goddess temple and worked with spiritual feminists in to do research. They formed goddess groups, they traveled to uh, major archaeological conferences, and they saw the goddess as embodying um, feminine values, spiritual feminine values that were important to them. Well, <clears throat> in my introduction to her book, I wrote something that I had to take out. And what it was is I, I had in living with her during her work on this, saw her encounters with political feminists. So <clears throat> let's just call 
second-wave feminism, political feminism. And Mimi was a political feminist, but she was also interested in the goddess and in the spiritual material. Most political feminists were not. Um, their response was, uh, religions have mistreated women for thousands of years. Why would we want to create a new one? And in addition, <clears throat> now this gets tricky. If there's a feminine principle, uh, which um, Mimi and her colleagues would say, uh, there's a ma masculine principle and a feminine principle. Men and women have both, but typically women have more feminine principle and men more masculine principle. Well, without going into detail about that, you can get her book. Uh, there are long discussions of it. The, we now have a notion that political feminists object to, that there's an essential female nature. Because once you say there's an essential female nature, you're open to, well, what is that? Uh, and uh, should women, all women, conform to that? And does it relegate women to and exclude them from certain roles? So what I described in my introduction is this opposition between political feminism, which says that there's no essential difference between men and women, only a statistical difference. So uh, most women might be more receptive than men, and most men might be more assertive than women, but there are a lot of women who are more assertive than men and vice versa. So you can only speak statistically. There is no essential nature. The um, Remember I read that list earlier? Spengler, Jung, Campbell, McLuhan, Paglia. Uh, they all accept uh, essentialist notions. And I believe that they're fundamental understanding culture, that you cannot understand art without essentialism. You can, but in so doing, you reduce art to politics. In other words, if you say um, the only discussion, permitted discussion of art is whether it furthers social justice and <clears throat> You look at the work of an artist and say, was this artist a misogynist? Um, you look at the Viennese Symphony and you say, is it structurally symbolic of rape? Uh, you look at Picasso's painting of women and then treatment of his wives and mistresses and girlfriends and say, is this... Uh, an abuse of women. Is this abusiveness inherent in his art? Is it the defining quality of his art? Now, <clears throat> I think all of the above is totally valid, but there's more to art beyond that. It's uh, the embodiment of a culture, and it's something that um, 
it is rather than just means. In other words, there's a, I think it's Chopin. There's a story told of Chopin where for uh, a woman patron, he plays a composition. And she says, that was very beautiful. Tell me, what did it mean? And he sits back down and plays it again. <laughs> so it doesn't mean anything. It just is. And the um, anti-essentialist, I think, approach to art is unable to address its isness. So uh, Camille Polygus certainly talks that way. That's what her book, Sexual Persona, was about, which was an amazing breakout book. I mean, it's a very dense and difficult tome. It is adopted from her PhD thesis and somehow broke out into being a bestseller. Now, um, for fans of or people interested in Camille Paglia or Oswald Spangler who aren't going to plow through reading them, let me make a recommendation. I have a colleague, John David Ebert. He's been on this show with me several times. He'll be on more in the future. He's a favorite interview subject of mine. And Ebert's an interesting guy. He went to college and didn't get much out of it, but somehow ran into Oswald Spengler. So he read Spengler. No, I'm sorry. He ran into Joseph Campbell. So he read all of Joseph Campbell, which few people do. <laughs> you know, you can, you can do the uh, power of myth and follow your bliss, but then you hit um, the mass of God, four volumes, five to 700 pages each. <laughs> Very few people that I know of have read them. My mother read them. It took her a year each. She would read the book, then she'd spend, you know, six or eight months following through on all the footnotes, then she'd read it again, then she'd take a couple months off to recover before reading the next one. So, uh point I want to make here is that Ebert has become a YouTube figure, and he's got hundreds of, literally hundreds of YouTubes, and <clears throat> they're kind of hard to find in searching, but He's got a whole series of YouTubes, um, chapter by chapter, going through Oswald Spengler's Decline of the West. So you can get it on uh, all explained on YouTube videos. And he is also doing Camille Paglia's Sexual Persona, and he's doing Campbell's Mass of God. He's not too far into that. That's going to take a long time. But anyway... I strongly recommend those videos. You'll find them uh, E-B-E-R-T, John David Ebert. I actually do a website with him, cinemadiscourse.com, and then one of his websites is cultural-discourse.com, where he uh, posts a lot of his essays. For a long time, we put a lot of work into Cinema Discourse. It's very busy. We're getting 1,000 visitors a day which is a lot for that kind of website. And now 
ah, you know, maybe you want to do videos instead of written essays in terms of where the world is. But um, I do recommend Ebert, and there are plenty of uh, plenty of YouTubes. He also works uh, just for people. I don't want to turn anybody off. He's a really serious intellectual. He's read everything. Oh, by the way, if you want to know what French post-structuralism is about, what is Michel Foucault all about, what is Derrida all about, he has a whole series of videos on that. He's probably the only person who figured them out. Most academics who talk about them don't know what they're talking about, but <clears throat> he explains them. But anyway, he's got a, a colleague who's a medium, and he, through her interviews, these figures, there's an interview with Oswald Spengler, who died, oh, I don't know, what, 80 years ago or something like that. Uh, <laughs> so um, really cool stuff. Strongly recommend it. But anyway, <clears throat> what all of these figures share, including Ebert, is a notion of archetypes. So let me just briefly define an archetype, or I'll explain it rather than define it. Carl, excuse me. <clears throat> Carl Jung really introduced the modern use of the term, although <clears throat> Jung never really clearly explains what he's talking about. And Joseph Campbell's presentation of the idea is much clearer. So, in simple terms, an archetype would be, for example, a dying and resurrecting God born of a virgin and associated with a cross. That's an archetype. It's a um, super type. It's a model. It's a paradigm. Then we get specific cultural manifestations. Christ for Christians, Tammuz for Mesopotamians, Osiris for Egyptians, Quetzalcoatl for Mayans and Aztecs, um, <clears throat> Osiris, no, uh, Adonis for Greeks. So all of these are dying and resurrecting gods born of a virgin associated with a cross. Christ is not the only one. Every religion has one just about every religion. So there's a, uh, let's say, a symbolic meaning there. And <clears throat> the meaning can't be expressed in words. That's why it's expressed in, manifest in the culture, in these cultural figures. But the meaning might roughly be an indication to us of our potential for uh, death to our worldly selves and a birth of our potential spiritual selves. Um, and then these mythological figures become manifestations of that idea that can be communicated to us. Another example would be the hero archetype or the archetypal hero journey, which is a existence in ordinary reality with a yearning for adventure, a separation from ordinary reality and a journey to a realm of fabulous forces, an encounter often with hero 
uh, helpers and a father figure and a mother figure, a winning of a decisive, well, there are great challenges, a winning of a decisive victory and a return to enrich the world. So Campbell describes that archetype in his book, Hero with a Thousand Faces. And, uh, well, it's Jack and a Beanstalk. It's Buddha. It's Christ. It's Mohammed. It's uh, the boy with the second, seven league boots. It's, it's most fairy tales. It is dum da dum dum. <laughs> Luke Skywalker is on the farm. Ordinary reality, learning for, yearning for adventure. A uh, call to adventure comes in the hologram from um, R2D2. Or is it C-3PO? Which is the little one? Anyway, uh, the the android, the um, uh, robot projects a hologram. Obi-Wan, help me. Obi-Wan, help me. Is that old Ben? So he goes off and he and old Ben, who's Obi-Wan Kenobi, great Jedi warrior, goes zooming off in the Millennium Falcon to a realm of space adventures where he, and Ka- he has helpers. C-3PO and R2-D2, and whom does he encounter? Darth Vader. Who's Darth Vader? His father. So all this is right out of the textbook. It's total textbook stuff. So um, George Lucas was very familiar with Joseph Campbell's book, Here with a Thousand Faces, used it as a text for the series of uh, the first three movies. And again, we have an archetype, which is then manifest in various ways. So that's what I mean by essentialism and archetypes. I think it's impossible to talk about the arts, to talk about culture without talking about them. Uh, <clears throat> the Daniel Dennett tries to derive meaning from Darwinian natural selection. Uh, He's not talking about the same meaning that I'm talking about. Uh, The meaning I talk about is in a series of nested Russian dolls of cultural coherence. And uh, Western culture, for example, a culture begins by laying down its temple form and its epic poem. The epic poems for Western culture are the Arthurian romances, the stories of King Arthur and Knights of the Round Table. And in these stories, we have a notion of an individual who acts out of their own inner morality. The morality is in the heart of each individual and is manifest by acting authentically rather than from society's rules. And with that laid down, we then get Huck Finn. We get the modern detective story. Down these mean streets walks a man uh, from uh, Raymond Chandler's essay, The Simple Art of Murder, and the temple form, the Gothic cathedral. So you go to Europe, stand in a Gothic cathedral. They built 80 of these things, and they were absolutely huge, 157 feet to the vaults in the largest one. Beauvais. It fell down. <laughs> Most of them fell down, but part of it's still there. 
and stand in the nave of a Gothic cathedral, and it's immediately apparent that it will be the descendants of the builders of this Gothic cathedral who will circle the globe and who will go into space. So the meaning of what this culture does is laid down symbolically in its original inception. So with that, let's wrap up. This is John Lobel. This is Visionaries. You'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. And you'll find our back shows, including this one in a day or so, at visionaries.podbean, that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, and download our app. See you next week.